you can now be a queer kid in a rural place where you don't know anybody queer and you can have an online community that makes you feel as unalone as you've ever felt in your life. And that is absolutely life-saving. There's, I can't think of anything more important that the internet could be doing. But they know that the brain chemistry, when you release dopamine, when you release oxytocin, all the reward system is really geared towards in-person relationships. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. Today's episode is all about social skills, but from an updated lens that really speaks to the lived experience of today's kids. My guest is writer and journalist, Katherine Newman, and we're going to dive into her new book, What Can I Say? A Kid's Guide to Super Useful Social Skills to Help You Get Along and Express Yourself. What Can I Say? is aimed at kids ages 10 and up, and it includes practical and accessible advice to help kids and teens learn how to do everything from introduce themselves, express empathy, be persuasive and apologize, to compromise, ask for help, be grateful and comfort a friend. In this conversation, Catherine and I talk about why social and interpersonal skills are more important than ever for our kids, despite the fact that their lives are evolving to include more time spent online. We also talk about the climate for social emotional learning and ways parents and educators can reinforce the social skills our kids are learning. And a little bit more about Catherine. In addition to the book we're talking about today, Catherine is the author of the memoirs Catastrophic Happiness and Waiting for Birdie, the middle grade novel One Mixed Up Night, the kids craft book Stitch Camp, and the how-to book for kids How to Be a Person. She edits the nonprofit kids cooking magazine Chop Chop, writes the etiquette column for Real Simple Magazine, and is a regular contributor to the New York Times, O, The Oprah Magazine, Parents Magazine, Cup of Joe, and many other publications. Before I get to my conversation with Catherine, I do want to give a quick shout out to Sarah Holzman, Shelley Sullivan, and Martina, three new supporters of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining my Patreon campaign and helping me cover the costs of producing this show. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to join Sarah, Shelley, and Martina in supporting it, you can sign up at Patreon to make a small monthly contribution. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash tiltparenting. Thanks so much. And now here is my conversation with Catherine. Hey, Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Debbie. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to be having this conversation. And we were just saying, we both feel like we know each other, yet this is our first actual conversation. So I'm really excited just getting to have this chat with you and sharing you with my audience. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Well, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? From the bio that I read in the intro, it's clear that you are a multi-passionate person. And you do lots of things in lots of different spaces, which I love that really resonated with me. I'd love to just hear in your voice, like kind of a little bit about what you do in the world. And and then as part of that, how writing these nonfiction books for kids became part of your body of work. Okay, well, that thank you. That's a great I love multi passion. I just wrote that down so that I can have it tattooed onto my wrist, because that's such a polite way to describe what I do. I have been a writer 
in some ways for my whole life, but I had a long divergent path through grad school. I actually got a PhD in literature in the 1990s. And then we had a baby. We were living in a friend's room, a friend's house, one room in a friend's house, my partner and I, with a baby, both of us trying to finish PhDs. And we thought, what are we doing? Moved from California back to the East Coast. And so then neither of us actually wanted to be academics. And so both of us finished our PhDs. And then my husband went to massage school. He is a massage therapist. And I wound up writing kind of full-time as a freelancer. So that has looked like writing copy for Kotex that's like, don't worry, you had a baby, the tampon won't fall out, that kind of like terrible work. I've written so many different things for so many different people. But along the way, I got hired by Baby Center. And you just have to picture this is back in the early 2000s. I had not heard the word blog. And I got written to write a weekly column about my kids. And that really launched my uh, career as a writer, even though they paid me $50 a week for a 750 word column. If you're not a writer, that's really bad money, just heads up. But it became a, a memoir. It became another column that also became a memoir. And then I was really a writer. And that's, and then there's others. I know you're looking at the bio, like, what about the food writing? What about the etiquette column? I do all kinds of other work and writing too. I love cooking. I love, loved feeding my kids. I have to put that in the past tense because they are both in college now, but I still love feeding them. Even though it was totally relentless, side note, dinner every single night, you're like, seriously, again with the dinner, but it turned out everybody needed to eat every single evening while they were growing up, which was baffling to me. But I wrote a lot of recipes. I've been the real simple etiquette columnist for 10 years, even though I have like horrible table manners and and never had a wedding. Like I'm so not a traditional etiquette person, but I love, love to think about relationships. And that is why I ended up writing the book, which is why I'm with you today. The What Can I Say book for kids is really in many ways, an etiquette book, but not etiquette in the, you know, tea with the queen way, but etiquette in the sense of how do we make our relationships, how do we treat them as primary and make them as strong as they can be? Because they are our greatest asset. There, I monologued. Sorry. No, it was great. You took us on a journey and we ended up right where we want to be, which is great. And I just have to say, too, with this book, and you wrote another book in a similar vein called How to Be a Person for Kids. It's a totally different thing to write a book for kids of, you know, what, what's the age group for, for these books? How do you identify it? Well, it really depends on, um, I mean, what they say is sort of based on a unspoken idea of like a neurotypical kid. So that we say like 10 to 14 for both of these books. That said, it can skew younger, older, depending on who your kid is. You know, we feel like we know that young adults are using the first book, How to Be a Person, which has a lot of life skills in it. And we know that that's a useful 
kind of backup for kids who've done a lot of occupational therapy who are just needing like a little reference, you know. And what can I say I would think would have a similar range, but it just came out yesterday. So we're not totally sure yet who's reading it. Well, yeah. And it's for this audience, I think you really nailed it just in terms of the tone and the accessibility. It's bite size. It's there aren't a lot of words in it, but every word matters so much. Like you cover so much ground in this book. I was delighted. Like every time I turned the page, I'm like, oh, and this, oh, and this. So, oh, I'm so glad. That makes me so happy. I haven't gotten a ton of feedback on it yet because it's just coming out. Yeah, no, it's, I just feel like it's, it's so important and you, you really covered so many things and I want to get into a lot of what you, you share in the book, but I guess to, before we get into that, it's, it's, what can I say? A kid's guide to super useful social skills to help you get along and express yourself. So why now can you just kind of talk about this book in the context of where we are in the world and why this book is so necessary? Yes. I mean, there are so many answers to that question. You know, one answer is the pandemic. I mean, these are evergreen skills anyways. There have been people talking about this stuff forever. But in this, I used to say post-pandemic, and now obviously it's evolving pandemic. I don't know what to say anymore. Um, In this world where kids have been in and out of their normal social lives over the last couple years, they've been in school, not in school, over Zoom, a lot of kids have dug deep into their phones. They are on social media a lot. And people talk a lot right now about feeling like their kids are not very fluent in their um, social relationships. I think that's true of a lot of adults too, by the way. It's just harder to teach adult stuff because adults don't tend to want to be taught anything. But kids are open, I think, to I think if you, you know, present these skills as learnable skills, kids will learn them instead of somehow presuming that these are skills that are in the air kids are breathing, which of course they're not. And then the other thing I say, so besides the pandemic, besides that you and I are speaking soon after a horrific Texas school shooting, where we are just thinking all the time about what is missing from everybody's life besides gun control laws. And then if you think of this, I I keep having, I'm so struck by the way that something as vast as foreign policy is an extension of social skills. If you think social skills at bottom, they're what they are, they're dealing with the fact that other people are different from you. That's kind of it. If everyone was the same as you, you would need no skills. They would just be exactly like you and you could just do whatever. People are different. That's a beautiful thing. And then what you do with that fact is really up to you. So if you think about like war over differences, that kind of thing, this is basically a huge version of how do we get along with other people? How do we turn somebody's difference into an asset instead of a liability? Yes. So as you were responding, I was thinking about, well, first of all, I've heard so much about kids these days who have, as you said, spent the past couple years really 
immersed in their devices, their social relationships have really played out online. And they may have gained skills with that kind of communication. But even those same kids put them in a room together, it will be crickets. Like they don't know how to engage with each other. And I'm wondering if you're noticing that. And I just wondered too, I feel like I've heard pushback from people who've said, you know what, that's where we are evolving. And kids, their lives are going to be played out on their devices. And we don't need to fight that as much. So what would you say in response to people who who maybe feel that these types of interpersonal, like in real life social skills don't matter as much? So I feel strongly that they do. And, you know, there's evidence that they matter. People who study depression and anxiety and how it relates to loneliness, loneliness as defined, you know, defined as not in actual human real life contact with people. My daughter who deals with like anxiety and has is on TikTok all the time and it is a lifesaver. It is so great. Like people are doing brilliant things online. So I'm not just globally dissing that. That's so important. You can now be a queer kid in a rural place where you don't know anybody queer and you can have an online community that makes you feel as unalone as you've ever felt in your life. And that is absolutely life-saving. There's, I can't think of anything more important that the internet could be doing. But they know that the brain chemistry, when you release dopamine, when you release oxytocin, all the reward system is really geared towards in-person relationships. So, And that's true. I love to say this. That's true even for introverts. So I'm an introvert. I'm an, a, like whatever. I've, I've been diagnosed as like an outgoing introvert, whatever. Even for me, what makes me feel good is human interaction. Do I need to then like go lie down with the cats for five hours? Yeah, maybe. But what is protective of our mental health? What is in fact the thing that gives us the will to live is in-person human interaction. And I think that's a worthwhile thing to actually explain to kids, to be honest, like just be transparent about it because there is science to support that. It is a fact. And I think, you know, my hunch is that this is something most kids want. A lot of kids, especially this is an area where a lot of neurodivergent kids struggle anyway, right? Is socially relating to other people, understanding how to navigate social situations. Not as you say, you know, this isn't in the water or in the air. Like these, a lot of times social cues are are things that differently wired kids may just not be good at in the first place. So I think that's what I so appreciated the nuances that your book went into. And I'd love to talk about some of them. We'll be right back after this quick break. If you listen to the show, you probably know that at least one in five children is differently wired. But did you know that approximately one in two women will experience hair thinning? If you're part of that 50%, you are absolutely not alone. But because hair thinning for women isn't something people openly talk about, going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. So why not do something about it with Nutrafol? Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Everyone's root causes of hair thinning are different, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth isn't going to cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow throughout different stages, postpartum, menopause, even for different lifestyles like a plant-based diet. 
To get your personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes, you can take a simple hair wellness quiz on Nutrafol.com. And because there's no prescription required, you can quickly get set up online with free shipping and automated deliveries, which make it so much easier to stick with your new hair care routine. See results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code TILT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code TILT. That's Nutrafol.com promo code TILT. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com tilt for 25% off. A lot of what you share is about emotional regulation, really, you know, how to be angry, how to forgive, how to express empathy. Can you say more about how you kind of identified the things that you wanted to include in here? Because it is so comprehensive. Thank you for that question, which is a great question. It was a very multi-pronged approach. We did a lot of crowdsourcing. We got a lot of feedback from kids about the first book. The thing kids most wanted that the first book didn't include, almost everything was social skills. Kids wrote us letters that were like, but how do I make small talk with my grandma? And how do I ask someone out on a date? And And we thought, oh, yeah, this is going to be another book where we just dig deep with social skills. And then because I've written that real simple column for so long, the truth is adults are dealing with really similar stuff. So when I distilled, at some point I distilled basically all of the major kind of themes and questions of 10 years of that column and it's a lot of stuff that's in this book for kids. You know, how do you how do you deal with being excluded? How do you um, extend to someone when you're not feeling necessarily generous? How do you say no? How do you you know all of the skills in this book? How do you keep 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 recentering yourself around empathy, which I think is probably you know, if there's one global suggestion, it's that to keep trying to imagine what it feels like 
to be somebody else. And that's a really hard thing. And I know there's controversy about whether or not empathy can be taught, but we know it can be taught to some extent and that it is a skill that takes practice of imagining what it feels like to be somebody else. That's if somebody smiles at you and you smile back, you're practicing empathy already. I feel like it's a good thing to remind kids. They actually already know what it is. But then we had to deal with a lot of nuance that I didn't really know about. And so, and I had to learn really fast, like at some point, and you'll laugh because like, this is so ignorant of me. But at some point I had said like, oh, it's really important when you're meeting somebody to make eye contact with them. And one of our beta readers who was reading for accessibility was like, yeah, lots of people can't do that. Like you can, that can't be a prerequisite for meeting somebody. We were able to fine tune to accommodate kind of much subtler questions of personhood than we had started with. So to make eye contact, if you can, to try again, to make eye contact, even if you think of it as something you can't do. And if you can't do it, you can't do it. That's fine. You have plenty of other things to offer that there, we just didn't want it to feel like a book where you would think, oh, shoot, this is not a book for me because I know I can't do this thing. Yeah, I noticed that in the eye contact. I was like, if you can, like it felt very inclusive to me because of course, as a parent of a neurodivergent kid, I'm always reading everything through a lens of, okay, but does this work for for my family? And and I, it did feel very inclusive in that way. So well done on that. And that's awesome. I took notes, like, of course, everything, as I said, every time I turned the page, I was like, yes, yes. Oh, interesting. You know, it, again, it covered so many things. I loved the inclusivity, how to be an ally. You include how to react to a racist joke, which I thought was wonderful. How to talk about pronouns. Can you talk about some of those issues that are more centered around identity and, and issues that could be considered tricky right now for certainly for a lot of adults to handle. Yeah, yes. And as I'm sure you can imagine, these were the parts of this book that the most people had the most comments about. So we had different, we hired different sensitivity readers at Story. We hired um, a Black writer and thinker to read the book um, through the lens of both potential racist assumptions in the book and also potential opportunities. And we had uh, a wheelchair user read the book for sensitivity to ability and disability and body differences. And, And I really had to practice some of the skills in this book of being really of reminding myself to be grateful instead of defensive, for example. It's really, it's, I got a ton of feedback and it was really vital to me and I treasured it. And also it's really hard to be criticized. So that was just an interesting process. And, you know, as I'm always so grateful to have those experiences where I experience a social interaction as challenging because you learn so much from that. You know, you can really expand into that. Anyway, we assume there, you know, maybe will be some pushback out in the world about some of these issues. I'm not really sure yet, or people thinking these aren't really kids' issues, but of course they really are. We 
are seeing kids kind of give up the gender binary all over the country right now. That is just a fact. Kids are no longer always comfortably identifying as a boy or a girl. Kids are either experimenting with gender or fully changing, deviating from the gender they were assigned at birth. So all of these things, they are real issues and they are in our kids' lives. Our kids are as far as I can tell, our kids are handling it much with much more grace than the adults are, by and large. Um, so I'm learning a ton from young people. And then there are things like how to respond to a racist joke. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do, as anyone who's ever done it knows. I have done it. And as an adult, it makes me so sweaty and nervous. And I'm pretty good at responding to stuff. And so We have a lot of caveats about like, if you feel safe and this is really hard, but it's also really important for people and especially white people in this moment to start seeing themselves, to start using that power for for the good of our whole society. So to just start, even if you read that and you don't practice it, that it's in your head with some, actually some scripts you could use. You know, we were really trying to be practical, not just um, aspirational, like, wouldn't it be great if you could respond to this? But like, what could you actually say if this happens in front of you? So anyway, we, some of these things are going to be too hard for some kids. And that's fine. That's why we keep saying, you know, if you can't do it, that's okay. And make sure you're safe above all. But also it's okay if it just sneaks into your head as like a, hmm, this is maybe something I'm going to try at some point. Yeah, I love that. It's so practical. And as I was reading it too, I was thinking this is a book especially again, for those of us raising differently wired kids that we may like read with our kid, we may practice some of those scenarios and do some role playing to to use some of those strategies and see how it feels like because they're hard to do. You know, if you're in an awkward situation, how do you leave it? How do you, you know, how do you handle this? Right. Yes. And when you say that, I'm thinking too about the fact that like neurodivergent kids who've done like a lot of OT, interestingly, often have a a much easier relationship to learning social skills because it's they've already been aware of learning them and that's just an interesting thing like if you like neurotypical kids don't always have experiences of being taught these skills which often means they haven't actually learned them or practiced them. So it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Like my kids, neither of whom identifies as neurodivergent, but we were going to a funeral two years ago. And these kids, so my kids are 22 and 19. And in the car, they were like, can we role play offering condolences? And I was like, yes, because it is so hard. It's so there. They felt so awkward and uncomfortable. They knew they needed to do it. And it just, they felt embarrassed or like they were going to screw it up. And we practiced in the car and we talked about how it was actually fine. You didn't need to go on and on. You could just say, I'm so sorry for your loss. But like practicing skills at the way we would practice like algebra or singing, like it's just 
another learnable thing, as you well know. But I think, I think for lots of parents, it feels like you should learn social and emotional skills the way you learn a language, that it's in the house and your kids just pick it up. I think being deliberate is probably a better way to go for everybody. Yeah, especially now, knowing that our kids are, their social engagement looks so different than when we were their age and in high school and kind of, you know, I think of my high school life of like going to track practice and then hanging out to go to waiting for play rehearsal to start and just hanging out talking to each other, right? I know. Or like winding the long cord from the kitchen phone so you could talk privately in like the coat closet. Like I just, I know it's so, so different. I I totally agree that I remember childhood exactly the way you just described it. Yeah. And I would say too, I love what you say about these kids who've been in OT. And I often say that neurodivergent kids can grow up to be some of the most kind of emotionally intelligent humans you'll meet because they have spent time exploring and thinking about relationships with others and how they show up in the world and how they experience being in a relationship with other people. Yeah. Oh, oh, I know. I think that's an incredible thing and should be a source of great pride. You know, that, that a lot of kids who've been in OT are basically students of human life in the way that lots of people maybe should be. Yes, absolutely. We'll be right back after this quick break. I'm on the road this month and oh man, am I missing my sweet kitties, Haskell and Lua. They've been a part of our family for more than two years and I'm so grateful they're keeping Darren such good company while I'm away. If you're getting a new pet soon, you're probably already thinking about everything you'll need to buy. Food, toys, a cozy bed, doggy bags or litter boxes. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. 
In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. And just to go back to, you mentioned that you're expecting some pushback. Certainly, as I was reading this book, I was thinking, I'm curious to see what the response is from certain communities, especially right now, I've been very much kind of outraged about the attack on social emotional learning, and just this idea that we don't want to be talking about things that we know are so critical. And so I don't know, do you have a a game plan? Or what are you thinking about in terms of this book as being part of this bigger conversation on the SEL that's happening right now, especially in the US? I don't have a game plan. That's a great question. I'm not probably super interested in criticisms in that vein. And I don't really know. What do you think someone could say to me, like that these aren't really skills or that people should just know this stuff? You know, this is a whole other conversation, but (laughs) (laughs) especially surrounding the inclusivity, the, the gender, those things that this is perpetuating ideas, ideas that we know are already, as you said, like this is the reality for our kids and their experience. I guess maybe what I would say is just that like, for me, none of this stuff, like these are not controversial things. These are just phenomena that exist in the world. And so we get on board and be supportive. Like I don't, especially like I'm thinking right now saying that I'm thinking about the gender thing. Like whether or not anybody feels some way about it, this is just happening. Kids just are not the genders they were assigned at birth, or they are non-binary, or they don't use the pronouns you expect them to use. I mean, it's not arguable, you know, it just is a fact. And so I feel like if we raise our kids to be supportive and inclusive, then that's the way to make the world the way we want it. And the truth is so many kids already are supportive and inclusive and they're doing an absolutely incredible job. And in the face of, of really daunting odds, it's a really, it's a moment where there is so much hatred. And I feel like I keep seeing kids just rise to the occasion over and over again of being brave and of being inclusive and kind and, that kills me. I feel like we have left it to them and they're and they're really doing it. They are doing it. I'm wondering if you could, I don't know if you have like a favorite skill or, but because your book is, again, it covers so many things, but what do you think would be 
if we could focus on one area, is there one thing that, that you think is most critical? I mean, oh my God, I have so many favorite skills. I, in my How to Be a Person book, when people ask me like what the most important skill was and that it was like my trick answer because that book was full of like how to do the dishes and take out the trash. And I always said my favorite skill in that book was how to apologize, which is still, I think, an incredibly useful skill. I feel like one of the skills I really think about and you know, love to help people cultivate. And this is true in the real simple calm as well with adults, but, and you're an interviewer like by trade. So probably it's hard for you to even think about the skill, but how do you cultivate curiosity in other people? So that sense of like, we want our kids to feel about other people like, I don't know. I just remember I have a metaphor in my head and it's like being a kid and watching someone crack open a geode. And there was just this like rough gray rock. And then on the inside, it was just like all glittering purple. And this feeling that if we approach other people with enough tenderness and curiosity, that we will have access to that kind of beauty. Now, that sounds very aspirational. And I realize that uh, there's nothing in the book that quite matches that, but just that curiosity about other people is a learnable skill. You ask questions, you listen when somebody um talks, you look up from your phone to indicate that you're curious and interested. So I feel like that's a weirdly kind of underrated skill or kind of way of moving through the world. But it seems to me that it's at the heart of so much. And again, just to expand it out, like if you think about things happening at a global level, if people stopped and said, wow, what's it like to be you? What What is the significance of this to you? Tell me more about you know, what you believe and why, those are just the biggest possible ways of being, the most significant ways of moving through the world. That's a huge worldview in and of itself, just curiosity. I love that so much. I love your geode metaphor. And I felt that, you know, I've had that experience of people that I maybe judged initially and then discovered who they were and how powerful that can be. And I think that's such an incredible skill for our kids who, you know, can be a little self-involved, especially if they're struggling. Oh my God. And I love that you said that about being wrong about people because that is one of my favorite things. I love to be wrong about people in that way. I love that. And that's coming to me, you know, I'm 53. That's new for me to just lean into being wrong. I, and to say to myself, oh my God, maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Instead of just like hanging from the mast of my opinion, you know, through the winds of change. It's really, I, I just love that. Yes. To be wrong about somebody. It's so good. Yeah, that's awesome. So before we say goodbye and, and wrap this up, 
again, we know this isn't a once and done thing that our kids are going to read the book. They'll be good to go. You know, we talked about role playing. Do you have any other ideas for ways we as parents and caregivers and educators can be really reinforcing and strengthening the skills in your book? I mean, it's like so obvious that it's almost painful to say it. And I don't want to just make everybody want to lie down on the floor with tiredness about this idea. But, you know, modeling is, I think about it all the time because I can be such a horrendous hypocrite. I can be so judgmental about my kids being on their phones. And then I can be on my phone and like not greet somebody when they come in to my home. One of my kids or my husband, like that weird thing, you can feel like everything you're doing is so pressing and urgent. And so I guess just, you know, other than like practicing with kids, but just modeling it, just like walking the talk of put your phone down, turn your phone off, which I know is insanity, but that is something I've started doing, turning it actually all the way off. So it's not just talking to me from across the room, you know, the way you feel so like your phone has something to share with you. Like I'm just turning it off and looking up and standing up to greet people. It sounds so, it's like embarrassing to say, because like, I assume most people are doing all those things, but I, I was in a habit of not doing that for a little while of just, I don't know. I, I just feel like this feeling of like sitting up and looking up and being really present when one of my kids is talking to me, even now, even at 22 and 19, just centering into the experience of being with them and what that models for them, which I really hope is the kind of attentiveness and caring that we want them to practice. So good. Love that. Love that. Thank you. So, well, before we say goodbye, again, I just want to remind listeners, the book is called What Can I Say? And by the time you're listening to this, it will have been out probably for about a month. The subtitle is A Kid's Guide to Super Useful Social Skills to Help You Get Along and Express Yourself. And Catherine, are there favorite places where people can track you down online and follow your work? I have a website, which is com, and everything is there, my books, and it's not very updated in terms of articles, but lots of stuff is there, and, and I love hearing from people, and I love hearing from kids, so if your kid ends up with this book in their hands and they have anything to share or anything they'd like to see different or covered in another book, I really, really hope they'll write me because that's like my favorite thing. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you. Congratulations. It's it's a day after your book birthday. So happy book birthday. And I'm so glad that you wrote this book and put it out into the world. And thanks for sharing with us today. Thank you so much for having me and for asking me such incredibly good questions. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. 
This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita, and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea, and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more, or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.